This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. For this edition of the Oncogene Brief, we sat down with Dr. Robert Hansbaka, Associate Professor in the Division of Surgical Oncology at the Department of Surgery at the University of Utah School of Medicine and Surgeon and Investigator with the Intermountain Healthcare and Huntsman Cancer Institute. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Hovland, here with Sonia Portillo. Dr. Robert Hansbaka is a member of the Experimental Therapeutics Program and he specializes in surgery for melanoma, soft tissue sarcomas, and cancers of the gastrointestinal tract. His research interests included novel techniques to identify how melanoma spreads to the lymph and vascular systems, resistance to targeted therapies in soft tissue sarcomas, including gastrointestinal stromal tumors, and novel therapeutics for solid tumors. We discussed with Dr. Antbaka some of the exciting research presented at this year's annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, which took place June 2nd to 6th in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Ant Baca addresses current standards of care in melanoma and the challenges that come with treating this disease, especially once it has metastasized to the brain. In this interview, he also discusses some of the approaches that are being tested and developed for melanoma, and explained why combination therapies are showing the most promise for both early and late stages of the disease. Some data presented at ASCO supports the combination of new drugs that can enhance existing therapies by altering the microenvironment of the tumor and making it more susceptible to treatment. Dr. Antbaka discusses why combination therapies have really transformed oncology in recent years by offering patients long-term survival benefits that were previously unseen. After the break, we'll be back with Dr. Antbaka. Before the break, we were talking about the work Dr. Antbaka is doing in the field of melanoma and some of the exciting research presented this year at the American Society of Clinical Oncology's annual meeting. Let's listen. Dr. Antbaka, welcome to the Oncogene Brief here at the 53rd annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO. Looking at some of the presentations that you've seen over the last couple of days here, um, what are some of the treatment options, some of the diagnostic options that uh, uh, in a variety of cancers that have uh, piqued your interest? Uh, thank you very much, Peter. I'm happy to be here. I think that um, in my field, which is uh, in melanoma, I think we've had a number of groundbreaking uh, presentations that were presented here. And specifically, I think patients with um, brain metastases you know that um, melanomas can go to the brain or metastasize to the brain, and usually when it does so, it's very difficult to treat these patients. We have traditionally used radiation and we have used surgery, but uh, traditional chemotherapies have not worked very well for the brain. And there were a number of presentations presented here specifically looking at patients with brain metastases and seeing if we can use some of the newer therapies that we have in melanoma to treat these brain metastases. And we found that both targeted therapies, these are patients that have a melanoma with a certain mutation, specifically a BRAF mutation. Uh, we know that when they have 
disease outside of the brain, the current treatment for that, which is a BRF inhibitor, and combined usually with a MEK inhibitor, uh, we can have very good responses. But we've had some indication that we can also use this for, uh, for brain metastases. But uh, to, um, here at ASCO, we now found uh, good evidence that we can use this very well for the brain metastases and have a very good response in the brain. Not only a response, but also a durable response. In addition to melanoma, we also use immunotherapy um, for patients with uh, metastatic disease. And uh, one of those is a combination of an anti-PD-1 therapy and an anti-CTLA-4 therapy. And these we we really liken them to sort of taking the breaks off the immune system. And uh, the two treatments for this that are used in combination is nivolumab and ipilimumab. And uh, there were two presentations from clinical trials uh, looking specifically at patients with brain metastases. And we found that these therapies have a response rate over 50% in the brain. So very similar to what we see outside of the brain. I think that's very encouraging to us. And also really highlights the fact then, that we may now have new paradigms by which we treat patients with brain metastases. And I think it's important for us to, to really not only have a response in the brain, but also have a durable response. And it appears uh, that we have a fairly durable response with this, albeit that the follow-up for all of these studies was pretty small or pretty short. But we're hoping that as we move over the next few years, that we'll have longer-term follow-up. And also, we hope we have uh, to have more durable responses in the brain. Now, one of the studies that you were uh, involved uh, in um, here at ASCO was a, uh, a study with data that presented about a primary results from randomized open-label phase two study in advanced states of melanoma. Um, now, before we come to talk a little bit about that, um, looking at, um, at melanoma as such, um, what is new about that approach that you do? Or maybe go one step back um, how is melanoma in standard therapy being treated? Yeah, I think that it's, uh, if you look in, in the, the Western world, so in, in, in Europe, or Western Europe, I should say, and the United States, fortunately, most melanomas are diagnosed at a very early stage. I think really what's key in melanoma is really prevention. And uh, we know that most of the melanomas are due to sun exposure, so UV radiation. And I think that something that we haven't emphasized probably as much as we should have is really the, uh, the sun protection using sunscreen and also using uh, clothing to try to protect us. And um, unfortunately, melanoma over the past 50 years is the, is the cancer that has increased the most per capita and it continues to increase, especially in the younger patient population. And I think this is very concerning to us because the best way to prevent any cancer is, is really to not be exposed to the uh, carcinogens, which in this case is really UV radiation that develops the cancer. So I think that's one thing. If then patients are diagnosed with melanoma, as I said, most patients are diagnosed at a very early stage. So most patients only need surgery for their melanoma. And uh, sometimes we also look at the lymph nodes as well. And what's important in melanoma is not necessarily the size and the surface of the skin, but really how deep the melanoma grows into the skin. The deeper it grows into the skin, the higher the risk of it getting into the lymphatic vessels and the blood vessels, and that's how it can spread to other places. So in melanomas that have a certain depth of invasion, we also recommend looking at the lymph nodes, and the lymph nodes tend to be the first place that the melanomas go to. So in these patients, we do a wide excision, and we also do what's called a sentinel lymph node biopsy, and that's to evaluate the lymph node to see if there is spread to the lymph nodes. If there is spread to the lymph nodes, we often recommend the patients have the rest of the lymph nodes taken out in that lymph node basin. So for instance, if a patient has a melanoma on the arm, the lymph nodes tend to drain that part of the arm are in the armpit, in the axilla. So we then 
if we find that there is evidence of spread to the lymph nodes in the axilla, we then take out the rest of the lymph nodes. Now, that is changing a little bit. We have some studies coming out. And there, there'll be one study coming out fairly shortly here that probably will change some of those practice patterns. But for now, we would recommend taking out the rest of the lymph nodes. And the reason we do that is we want to have both local control, but we also want to have appropriate staging of the patient. And that really guides us then to the next step. And we know in patients that have spread to the lymph nodes, we would also then consider adjuvant therapies. Now, adjuvant in this setting really means therapies for patients that we don't have any clear evidence of them having melanoma. But we know that there is a risk of them having a tumor cells circulating in their body. And we really want to try to make it as inhospitable for those cells as possible so they don't set root and start to grow. <clears throat> and the adjuvant therapies that we have used traditionally for melanoma includes um, interferon alpha-2b that has been around for about 20 years. And it's a treatment that has been shown to decrease the risk of the recurrence for the melanoma and also improve survival, albeit a very small amount for patients. And more recently, and also a study that was presented here at ASCO this year, is using some of the newer agents that we use, including the anti-acetylate 4 antibody, ipilimumab. And we know uh, from a previous European study that if we use this in patients who've had all the lymph nodes taken out and we give ipilimumab compared to a placebo, there is an improvement both in terms of uh, in decreasing the risk of recurrence, but also in, in an improvement in survival. The dose that we use for ipilimumab is actually a higher dose than we use for patients who have metastatic disease. These are patients with lung and liver metastases. So that's been one of the, um, the challenges. And, uh, and also because the dose that we use is so much, uh, is uh, 10 to the 10 milligrams per kilogram. So it's about three times greater than the three uh, milligrams per kilogram that we use for patients with metastatic disease. It also means that it has a lot more side effects. The 10 milligram has a lot more side effects than, than the three milligram. Now there's a study that, we, that was presented here at ASCO looking specifically at using the, the 10 milligram and the three milligram. And really we found that there was no difference in the risk of recurrence if we used a three milligram versus a 10 milligram. Now the follow-up for this and the data is still a little bit, bit immature, but I think at least indicating to us that we can possibly use the same um, dose as we would use in a metastatic setting with less side effects for patients. We also have newer adjuvant studies that are currently being conducted, and these are using some of the even newer therapies, specifically the, uh, the anti-PD-1 antibodies. And um, these studies are currently ongoing. We don't have the data from this, but we know that the anti-PD-1 therapies work very well in patients with metastatic melanoma, and we have responses between 35 and even up to 50%. And we're hoping that by using this earlier on in patients that don't have any evidence of disease after we've done surgery, but, with, but that have a high risk of recurrence, we hope that using these anti-PD-1 therapies will also decrease the risk of recurrence. But these studies are ongoing, and I hope that over the next year we'll have at least some data coming out regarding this. Now, when you uh, look at the, the study that you were directly involved in and some of the, pres the presentation that was yes. given on Saturday, I believe, um, what is more exciting news about that? Because that's a relatively new approach to the treatment of melanoma. Um, so, first of all, start us off with telling how that drug particularly starts or works. Yes, yeah, so, so one of the newer therapies that we have been using for melanoma for about about seven to eight years right now, is, is using viruses. And these are oncolytic viruses that we inject directly into the tumor. And uh, 
these viruses are often modified uh, so that they will only produce new virus particles inside the tumor but not in normal cells. And so we inject the virus directly into the tumor and these are patients that have either a dermal, a subcutaneous or lymphoma metastasis. So basically things that melanomas that we can feel on the skin or metastatic melanomas that we can feel on the skin or in lymph nodes. We inject this directly into the tumor, and once inside the tumor, uh, the virus produces new virus particles inside the tumor. And uh, this leads to the tumor cells being bursting open, and inside we have cancer proteins that have, been not, that have not been seen by the immune system before. And I should say that melanomas are very good at hiding from the immune system, and that's how melanomas can grow, that they basically fool the immune system not to see them. So by injecting these viruses, and they go into the tumor, and now we have the tumor cells bursting open, these cancer proteins that have not been seen by the immune system are then discovered by the immune system. And the virus also helps them to activate the immune system locally where we injected it against the tumor, but also creates a memory in the immune system to fight the melanoma at distant sites, sites that we have not injected. So we've done a number of these studies uh, with monotherapies, with the viruses only. But the data that we presented at ASCO here was actually three different studies. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about them and how they sort of the why I think this is important. So first of all, we know that in, in most cancers that using only one therapy, uh, we can only get so much response. But by combining therapies, we hope to get a better response. And so Peter, the way I explain this to my patients is that that when we want to activate the immune system, it's like driving your car. If you want to make your car go faster, you can do two things. You can press on the gas, and you can take the handbrake off if you forgot it on. Same thing for this, a lot of the checkpoint inhibitors, the anti-CTLA-4 therapies, the anti-PD-1 therapies, they take the brakes off the immune system, and the viruses that we inject, they push on the gas for the immune system. So in one of these studies, we used a herpes simplex virus called HF10. Now, this is a naturally occurring herpes virus, but it has uh, naturally um, had deletions of certain um, genetic components in it. So, for instance, when we use this, it does not give herpetic infections or herpetic uh, lesions that we would expect to see with a standard herpes simplex that one virus. But it is not genetically modified, so it doesn't have an extra genes put into it. And we've done a smaller study with this virus when we know that we, when we inject it into melanomas, we can have very good responses. So in the study that we did now, we actually combined it with one of these anti-CTLA-4 therapies called ipilimumab. And what we found from this study we found that there was an improvement in response by combining these two um, products, the, the HF10 virus and the ipilimumab. And actually the response that we see is more than double than we would expect to see by ipilimumab alone in patients with advanced melanoma. In addition, when we combine things, we want to make sure that there's no added safety concerns. And really by combining the, the virus with the ipilimumab, there really was no added um, um, adverse events or toxicities compared to using the ipilimumab alone. So that was very reassuring to us. In addition, we wanted to make sure that we could have responses in both patients who were treatment naive. These are patients who've had no treatment for their metastatic melanoma, or any patients who may have failed other therapies. And what we found that in patients who were treatment naive, the response rate uh, to this combination, the HF10 and the ipilimumab was 50%. Now we have to remember that ipilimumab by itself has a response rate between 15 and 20%. So it was very encouraging for us to see more than doubling what we would expect to see with ipilimumab, ipilimumab alone. We also found that in patients who have failed other therapies, and most of the patients actually had failed two or three other therapies, 
by combining these two, our response rate was actually 30%. Again, encouraging that we can get responses. And we have to remember that ipilimumab by itself in this setting has a response rate of about 10%. So I think encouraging data, still a fairly small study, but really sort of gives uh, an indication of where we need to take that moving forward. A second study that we presented um, used um, actually uh, was a randomized study and used a different herpes simplex virus called uh, Telemigen herpes also known as TVEC. Now this is already approved by the FDA in the US and by the EMA in Europe for patients with metastatic melanoma. And uh, in this study we were interested in asking the question if we combine this with ipilimumab, do we see a better response compared to using ipilimumab by itself? And we found that in this randomized study, indeed, that was the case. The response rate to ipilimumab was about 18%, which is what we've seen in all the other studies with ipilimumab. But yet, when we combine it with um, TVAC, the response rate was 38%, so more than doubling of the response. Again, very encouraging. And similar to the HF10 plus ipilimumab study, there was no added toxicity, adverse events, by adding TVAC to, uh, to um, ipilimumab. So I think this is really the first time in a randomized fashion that we've shown that adding an oncolytic immunotherapy virus to a checkpoint inhibitor, we have an improvement in response. And the responses that we saw was not only in the injected lesions, but also non-injected lesions, which really for us is important because it indicates that the virus locally causes an effect, but also activates the immune system to have an effect at non-injected distance sites. A third study that we presented was really asking the question, in patients who have been on some of these newer therapies, the anti-PD-1 therapies, the epilimumabs, we know that there are many patients that don't respond to those therapies. Actually, about 50% of our patients don't respond to them. And the question is, well, why do they not respond to them? And we know that, that for patients to respond to these therapies, you really need to have immune cells inside the tumor to have an effect on the tumor. And many of these patients don't have the immune, appropriate immune cells inside the tumor. So that's one of the mechanisms by which they don't respond. So in a study using a Coxsackie virus, a Coxsackie virus A21, we have previously shown that in specifically in these tumors that don't have the immune cells in them, when we inject the virus into the, uh, the tumor, we can actually bring the immune cells in. And we hope then by bringing those immune cells in, we can then give the checkpoint inhibitors back and have a response there. So that's what we did in this study. We looked specifically at patients who failed PD-1 therapy and asked the question then, in these patients, if we then inject the Coxsackie virus into the tumor and we give them the anti-CTLA-4 therapy, ipilimumab, will we then see a response? And the answer was yes. We actually saw a response. We saw a response that was over 30%. And it is, which is extremely encouraging to us because we know that the ipilimumab in the setting by itself has a response rate between 10 and 13 percent. So again, almost a tripling of the response that we would expect to see with ipilimumab alone. And uh, I think that that is, you know, really where the future is going with this. We're trying to understand the mechanisms of resistance of these tumors trying to reverse that mechanism of resistance and then use different therapies, including these oncolytic viruses, to change the tumor microenvironment for these sort of immunologically cold tumors to become hot tumors so that we can get a response in them. Now, looking at uh, the results that you're getting and you're looking at uh, the potential of this drug, I mean, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but 
um, potentially for the treatment of the general population of people with the disease. Where do you think this drug may ultimately fit in? Is it something that is going to be first-line therapies? Is it something that is in what you just mentioned also about combination therapies? Uh, but wh wh where do you think ultimately uh, it may work at the best? Yeah, I think that specifically these oncolytic immunotherapies, these viruses, but also we have some small molecules as well that we're using. I think they will have several roles. First of all, I think that they will be beneficial to be used as, as monotherapies, especially in patients with earlier disease. These are patients with melanoma. They may have disease, sort of metastatic disease on the, in the skin only or in lymph nodes only. And I think specifically we know these therapies can work extremely well in these patients. And we've known, we've shown, we've shown for instance, with the telemagenular graphic with TVEC, that the response rate in these lesions in patients that have these earlier diseases is over 50%. We've also shown that in many of these patients that do not yet have spread to other places, to distant places such as lung and liver, by using um, TVEC in these, we can actually prevent them or at least um, increase the time that it takes for them to spread to lung and liver. So I think this is going to be a very important um, mechanism, an important uh, use of these therapies. I think that for patients with more advanced disease, patients that already have lung and liver metastases, but have one of these lesions that we can inject, I think they're really combination therapies are going to be key. And really to try to get a robust activation of the immune system, not only locally, but also at distant sites. A third application is going to be really in these patients who are, who are not responding to the anti-PD-1 therapies, the anti-CTLA-4 therapies that uh, have resistance to them. And using these oncolytic immunotherapies to try to reverse that resistance and make those non-responders to become responders. A fourth um, therapy is going to be really in patients that are sort of earlier in their disease stage. Now, all of these patients that we've talked about so far have unresectable disease. We feel that surgically we cannot remove all of the tumor. But we know that there are patients that we can take all the tumor out. So for instance, patients that have only two or three small metastases in the skin, we can usually take that out surgically. Or patients that have lymph nodes with melanoma in them that we can take out surgically. And today, the main therapy for them have been surgical resection to take them out surgically. But we know they have an extremely high risk of recurrence. So the question then becomes, can we use these therapies before we do surgery to try to activate the immune system against the tumor and then take them surgically out once we've activated the immune system with the hope that we actually have a lower risk of the tumors recurring. And we just finished a very large randomized clinical trial using uh, telemagen, therapeutic, or TVEC, in which uh, we randomized patients to have surgery up front, which will be our current standard of care, versus receiving TVEC for three months injected into the tumors and then have surgery. And the primary endpoint is going to be the recurrence rate for this. Now, we just finished the study, we don't have the results from that, but over the next uh, year and a half, that's really going to be interesting to see if we can use these uh, therapies for that. That's also where it's moving in many other, with many other therapies, both as monotherapies with these injectable oncolytic immunotherapies, but also in combination with some of the already established anti-PD-1 therapies and, uh, and others. And I think that's really going to be the next uh, frontier for patients with melanoma, that trying to treat these patients earlier, activate their immune system, against the tumor, do surgery, and then we hope have a lower risk of recurrence for them. So in the, uh, if you look at the benefit to the patient in that respect, um, you potentially look at something um, as curative 
in, in, in that sense, and it's not just uh, progressive free survival or stable disease? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question, Peter. I think that really, as a clinician, we're always reluctant to say that we have a cure. But I think for the first time, really, um, for our patients with melanoma, I think that we have long-term durable responses. And uh, we know that um, for, for instance, patients who've been on ipilimumab, we now have 10-year data from that saying that if you've had a response and you're three years out from that response, the likelihood of this melanoma coming back is exceedingly low. So I think that for the first time, we really are thinking about potential uh, cures for our patients. And I think this really brings up another topic really, when, um, when we think of patients that come in with metastatic melanoma. What I tell my patients is that we really have four goals in mind. We want to find the best treatment for our patient. We want to make sure that the melanoma goes away completely and never comes back. We want to do that with the least amount of side effects for the patients. And we uh, want to do this uh, also without burning any bridges down the line. And the reason being is that none of the therapies that we have will work 100% of the time. But we have to be very thoughtful of how we plan these therapies so that we know that if we use one therapy, there are others that we can't use subsequently. So we have to be very cognizant of this. And I think that really brings in the whole concept of clinical trials uh, for our patients with metastatic melanoma. Um, really to advance the field, we need to have patients participating in these clinical trials. And I think that that's how we've learned in the past. So the way we currently treat our patients with melanoma is based on patients having participated in clinical trials previously. I think also we have to recognize that, that in melanoma it's exceedingly rare to have a placebo as a um, comparator arm. It's really not ethical anymore since we now have, have effective therapies for patients with metastatic melanoma. So all the therapies that we have right now, the clinical trials, they use an active agent, but we usually add an additional agent to that active agent to see if we can have a better response uh, by adding two agents or even sometimes three agents together uh, compared to um, the standard of care. So I think that I encourage patients to participate in clinical trials and nationwide, we know that all patients with melanoma uh, the, uh, and also in many other tumor types as well, the participation rate in clinical trials is about four to five percent. At our institution, we're trying to increase that to 20%, and we're actually doing quite well. Currently at our institution, our participation rate is about 17% of all patients that come in participate in one or more clinical trials. And I think that's really how we bring the field forward. That's also how we get a better understanding for this and really, really help our patients with melanoma. And I think it's important also, what I tell my patients, that the clinical trial itself, unfortunately, may not help the individual patient but it definitely will help patients coming down the line, just like the trials that we did four, five, six years ago are helping them now. So one thing to emphasize, and that's really some of the things that you mentioned a minute ago. Um, so when people are invited to participate in the clinical trial, it is absolutely crucial for them to know that it's either the standard care that they receive or the standard care combination or the new therapy that actually being trialed. It's not something that may not work at all, but it's always making sure that they get the standard. And that is correct. I think that if we go back to melanoma about 10 years ago, when we really didn't have any therapy that worked well at all, we may then have given patients a placebo as part of this. That really is not going on in melanoma anymore since we now have effective therapies for this. So it really is basically the standard of care and versus the standard care plus something else to try to see if that adding that plus something else works better than the current standard of care. Okay. Uh, overall, a successful ASCO? 
It's been a very successful ISCO. I think we've had some uh, very nice data being presented here. We've had a few things that are probably practice changing. And I think that it's uh, it just reminds me that we've come a long way in treating patients with metastatic melanoma. Ten years ago at ASCO, we really had very few presentations and, and uh, about patients having long-term responses. And that's changed completely now. So also in my practice, what I tell my patients when they come in to see me, many of them have been on the internet. They've read a lot about melanoma. Many of them are very tearful when they come in. And uh, what I tell them, I said, well, when was this printed? And because right now in melanoma specifically, things are moving so quickly that if you read something that's three months old, it's already getting out of date. And uh, I think that's also one thing I think I encourage patients as well is that the internet can have a lot of information, but a lot of disinformation as well. And I think it's sometimes uh, challenging to, to sift through all of that information. So we spend a lot of time talking about sort of where we are right now, where we are going, and for each individual patient, what care we feel would be the best to help them in, um, in combating their disease. Thank you, Dr. Thank you very much, Peter. It's really exciting to see some of the novel diagnostic and treatment options for a variety of cancers being presented at the annual ASCO meeting, including studies discussing advances made in the treatment of melanoma. It's exciting to see how this study and others are showing promising results when the drug in question is working together with existing therapies in order to activate or alter the microenvironment of the tumor. And this study, and with this many other studies, emphasizes the importance of clinical trial participation. And one of the key things that patients and their doctors need to understand is that in participating in a clinical trial, they are either receiving the standard of care, receiving the standard of care in combination with a new drug, or a new therapy. Yes, it's good to know that in the treatment of cancer, they are not simply given a placebo. It is always something that is designed to treat their disease. The interview you just heard with Dr. Ant Baca was originally recorded and broadcast during the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, which took place June 2nd through 6th, 2017, in Chicago, Illinois. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. We'll post as many answers as we can on our website oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncozine Brief. The Oncozine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofland, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. 
The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.